0: How's everyone? Good good to see you. My name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at First Calling Christian Church. We're glad that you have been here. About a year ago, I went with a group of people to a Eastern Orthodox Holy Saturday service. And I don't know if you've ever been to one. I would recommend it for the experience. There were a group of us there. Michelle, I think you went as well. Jake, did you go as well? Adam, you did not go. Sinner, okay. Uh, So there were a few... A, it was a church planning book that taught me always call out one person in the congregation and it helps it helps uh, people attend more. We've been trying it for years. It has not worked. Um, we, we went to this Eastern Orthodox church service and I learned a few things. I learned one, that you can have church for more than four hours. Um, people do start to nod, but there's an effective way to keep people from nodding, which is you have a priest going around at all times with a bucket of like oil and incense and they splash you in the face with it and it keeps you up uh and yes i uh, am willing to do that this morning uh if it goes very long and, and we learned at the church service that repetition is very key um we repeated the same thing over and over and over and over again and there's a sense by the end of the the service where you thought these words could not be any more meaningless to me um, and when you knew you were about to repeat them you're just like come on once again and after you left there, there's this strange sense of, and I'm not sure I've ever experienced it anywhere else, the, the words or the phrases, the, the choruses that were repeated, had kind of sunk inside of you a little bit. Um, it was almost as if they were wedged in your heart or in your mind in a way where you no longer needed to say them out loud. And there was this beauty to it, and there was this peace to it. And so that's one of the many reasons why We love to continue the tradition here at First Calling Christian Church of um, having a a leader say, He is risen, and having the congregation respond with, He is risen indeed. So, He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm going to try to keep you on your toes a little bit as we head through the sermon. If you have your Bibles, would you flip with me to Mark chapter 5? A while ago, we started a sermon series on the book of Mark. Uh, We have been in it for a few months. We've gotten to Mark 5. Mark 5. We took a break to study the book of Jonah over the last few weeks. Spoiler alert, there's a whale, he swallows Jonah. Uh, And and we're now done with Jonah, we're back in the book of Mark. Um, I get paid a whole lot of money to plan out things like this, so we're back in a story in Mark that works for Easter. Uh, So we'll pick back up our series uh, here in in Mark chapter 5, with a very powerful story that I think has a lot to teach us here. Um, And and in particular, I want to focus in on something that Jesus says this morning. And it's something that has a lot of power, both to the original person Jesus is saying it to, and then I think also to you and I today. In fact, it's one of those phrases that you can, I think, list off among a handful of other phrases that have the power and capacity and ability to change someone's life. There are a few phrases in human language, whether it be English or or any other languages, that when a person hears it, particularly from a certain person or in a certain situation, it has the ability to change things. It has the ability to affect someone on a deep level. So, I mean, I could give you a couple of examples. One would be, imagine you're sitting in a doctor's office. And the doctor comes in after some tests, and he sits down, and he says this phrase, you have cancer. And imagine how in that moment, those handful of words, have now just change your life. And now all of a sudden you're overflooded with thoughts of fear and, and, and days in, in the future full of pain and, and, and full of struggle uh, and, and full of treatment. Uh, imagine perhaps you're in a, another scenario and, and you're talking to another person and, and you hear this phrase, I forgive you. And imagine how powerful those words can be. As you think back on past mistakes and ways that you have perhaps betrayed somebody and now you're overwhelmed with gratitude and opportunities of a second chance. Uh, I was a bit of a troublemaker when I was a kid and so I'm still to this day unable to hear the words, we need to talk. Uh, People who know me know this is actually true. If you tell me we need to talk, I will nag you like a mentally ill person until you tell me what it's about (laughs) or we have the conversation right now. I need to know. What's the what's the message? What's the opportunity? Um, some words uh, are perhaps more joyful or comedic than others. I don't know if you have any Maury fans in the audience, but it's got to be a good feeling to hear the words, that is not your son, <laughs> or that's not true. I have to make a list of jokes that I want to use during a sermon and have them approved by our elder board. And I had four more really funny jokes. <laughs> that they, they all crossed out. and So that was the best I had for you. <laughs> it's... It makes you wonder why bad things happen to good people. Um, but, but that's the best I've got. Um, imagine this phrase. Maybe you've, you've heard this phrase before. I don't, I don't know. Imagine you're sitting in a room with a loved one. Perhaps you've had struggles. And you hear the phrase, I want a divorce. And all of a sudden, years of relationship building come crumble down, um, crumbling down in front of you. And again, a future um, that you are unsure of faces you. Imagine the words, I love you powerful words, a phrase that can change someone's life, overwhelm you with joy and gratitude. This morning, we're going to hear a phrase in just two words in the original language from Jesus, which I think have the ability to change and affect one's life, including our own, in a way, perhaps even greater than, than some of the phrases we just looked at. And so what I want to do is read the story. Uh, we'll unpack it a little bit, um, and then we'll look at how it uh affects and speaks to who Jesus is and how it might affect our lives here in 2015 so Mark 5 we'll pick it up in verse 21 and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea then came one of the rulers of the synagogue Jairus by name and seeing him he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying my little daughter is at the point of death Come and lay hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now up to this point in the Gospel of Mark... Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. And he started kind of gathering this following about him. And he starts with the message that the kingdom of God is here, um, that heaven is coming to earth, that as we all know, lots of things are messed up in the world. And what God desires to do is to fix these things, to correct them, um, to make all that is wrong right. And he has started to do this through the person and work of Jesus. And so Jesus um, calls some disciples together and they follow him. He goes about healing and teaching, performing miracles such as this one. Um, We know from Mark he had just gotten back from a visit to Gentile territory where the Jewish people did not live. He encountered a man with demons there. uh, And so he has kind of been surrounded by uncleanliness um, and by unfortunate circumstances. As soon as he gets back off the boat to the other side, he again is surrounded by the crowds who need his help, who want his help. And we're told that a man named Jairus (coughs) had come and fallen on his feet and had asked Jesus for help. He had a daughter who was 12 years old who was dying. He had heard the stories about Jesus, and he believed that Jesus could help. Now, Jairus is in a particularly interesting situation. He's the leader of the synagogue, so he would be equivalent to a modern-day pastor. He would have had to have had a very ambiguous relationship with Jesus. Um, If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, Jesus is not everyone's best friend while he's alive. Um, there are those who follow him and seem willing to follow him to death and then those are um, other people who, who seem to be wanting to put him to death and then you've got a whole range of people in between as the synagogue leader Jairus probably has been very publicly distant about jesus about his opinions about him surely though he's heard the stories and talked to people um, who have told him stories about jesus he finally reaches though his point of desperation and he says, the only thing I have left after spending lots of money is to come and see if Jesus will help. We know Jairus is somehow remarkably wealthy. The average home in the ancient first century uh, Israelite setting was a one-house home. Um, Jairus's daughter has a house to her own. Uh, which would have been uncommon for a synagogue ruler uh, in in their financial situation. So we're not sure if Jairus has money coming out the side or or what exactly is going on, but he's fairly wealthy. We can assume he spent a lot of money on positions, much like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And he comes and he asks Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus, as we've seen throughout the Gospels, and as you will see throughout the Gospels, you'd go home tonight and read it, responds with compassion and with a yes. Jesus never turns away one who comes to him for healing, for comfort, and for help. He never once says, I'm busy, I'm tired, I've done enough today. Jesus says, all right, let's go to your daughter. Now, frustratingly for Jairus, their journey to his daughter gets interrupted by this woman who has been bleeding. Um, If you're Jairus, you've got to think, this is bad timing, right? Worse. Um, There are lots of things that interrupt Jesus and his journey to um, Jairus' daughter. The first is... This woman is bleeding, touches him, gets healed. And then Jesus decides to make a conversation of it. If you're Jairus, you've got to be thinking, look, you healed her. That's enough. Let's keep going, right? We're, this is time sensitive. We've got to get back to, to my daughter. Jesus stops. He, he has a search take place. He has this conversation with the woman. And then the worst possible news comes while Jairus is waiting for Jesus to finish his conversation with this bleeding woman. News comes from home. And says, the daughter is dead. There's no more, no more hope. Don't, don't, the teacher doesn't need to come anymore. And Jesus hears this and he utters what is the most repeated command in the scriptures. Which he says to, to Jairus and, and says to you and I um, continually. It's this, don't be afraid. He says, only believe. Don't be afraid. And so they, they keep on going to the house. We're not told what Jairus is thinking, what's going on. When they get to the house, there is a commotion People are outside weeping. In the ancient world, and in many ways, they are much better at weeping than we are. They did it very publicly. Um, they tore their clothes. They screamed in, in public. We go into corners, right? We lock the doors and we cry privately and we kind of stuff it down deep inside until one day it boils over into an angry Facebook post. Uh, they, in the ancient world, right? You actually had you, you actually had professional mourners, people whose job it was to come and to help you mourn privately um you might be thinking like i know a person who could do that they i mean they would come and they would scream and yell and tear their clothes and help make it known to the world that something terrible a tragedy had come and had happened to you jesus sees this and he asks an interesting question here which i think is worth thinking about he when he had entered he said to them why are you doing this why are you making a commotion and weeping He says, the child's not dead, but sleeping. And scholars wonder here whether Jesus is actually saying the child's sleeping, right? Like, you're being a little silly. The child is taking a nap. Why would you hire professional mourners to come here? Sleep, though, is often an idiom for death in the Bible. Um, Ancient people knew just as well as we did the difference between a nap and between death. Um, And and so it's very, very unlikely the child is actually just sleeping. Um, Sleep is a metaphor for death often used by the Hebrews. Because they believed in something called the resurrection of the dead. That one day, at the end of history, God would rise all of his people bodily from the grave. And so sleep indicated to them that death was a temporary thing. And here Jesus seems to be indicating that it's even more temporary than they might imagine. Um, I want to suggest to you something here from this passage and from other passages. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is not a fan of funerals. He comes to the funeral... Right, He comes and he, he sees the commotion and weeping. And he's confused. Now, if I could interject a little bit, I think he's a little annoyed. I think he's a little annoyed that he's made a journey to come see this girl and people are here mourning. I teach freshmen, uh, ninth graders. <laughs> Your laughter says everything. <laughs> and when you teach children... you you give them a lot of facts and you cram a lot of things down their throats and and they memorize a lot of things before a test and and you know fully well that they'll probably forget most of it as soon as you take the test but what you hope for is that there'll be one or two or three things they remember from the class and and from their time with you. And one of the things I've always tried to make that um, is this point right here that Jesus, if we know much about him, we know that he hates funerals. I think funerals stand for Jesus for something that is deeply and unmistakably wrong with his creation. The other time we are told of a funeral, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is Jesus going to see his best friend Lazarus, who has died. And Jesus interrupts that funeral and says, Let's turn this into a different kind of party. I'm done with the funeral. Get up. Come again. You don't see Jesus making a habit out of going to funerals. Um the one kind of party Jesus does seem to like uh, well, he likes when prostitutes and tax collectors are around. You, you seem to find them there a lot. Um, and he also seems to like weddings. It's always an interesting story, again, reading the first miracle in John to a group of freshmen. Um, because you've got a people who've been drinking wine all day. Uh, and then when the wine runs out, Jesus makes more of the wine. And you get awkward questions like, well, are they not getting like drunk here? Are they what? And I'm like, so, yeah, talk to your parents. This is not, <laughs> this is not a question for me. But, but when the weddings seem to stop, Jesus seems to go, let's keep let's keep going. I like this celebration of life and new life and relationship. And when the funerals come, Jesus seems to go, why, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? Let's, let's not continue in this anymore. Um, so they laugh at him. They think Jesus is being silly here um, by saying she's not dead uh, and she's sleeping. Perhaps because they're laughing, he says, get out, everybody out. Uh, I don't want you to be around. He takes the mother and the father and his closest three disciples, and he goes in, and here's the phrase. Here's the phrase that changes everything. Talitha kumai. Talitha kumai. What's interesting is this is given to us in Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke historically. Uh, Most of the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, uh, which was the language of the people. Most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Most of the time when Jesus speaks to us in the scriptures, it's translated for us into Koine Greek, which is, of course, translated into other languages for you and I to read it. Very few times does the Aramaic stay uh, and come through to us so that we hear the actual sounds and syllables that Jesus uttered. One noteworthy uh, occurrence of this is on the cross. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's kept in the Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, Lamas sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? here, though, we get the actual sounds that Jesus says as he sits near this girl. Say it with me. Talitha. Kumai. Now, Talitha's not a name. We, we probably shouldn't guess that this is the name of the little girl. Um, Talitha is a name of endearment. It would be similar to what a father might say to a little girl telling a bedtime story. You might translate it, honey. Daughter. Sweetheart. Sweetie. Jesus sits down, takes her hand, and says, Little girl, arise, kumai, get up. And immediately she gets up and starts walking. I love that he gets her some food. He's probably like, you're pretty hungry. Let's get some food here. Jesus is nothing if if not practical. And you have here an important and inspiring story. Um, Jesus, with this one little phrase, changes this girl's life, changes the life of her family, but if we stop there, I think if, if we just focus on what Jesus says to this girl and how it affects her in her life, I think we miss the bigger point of the Gospels and of this particular story. Um, we could ask the question like this that, that might lead us deeper um, in the correct direction. We could ask this question, why doesn't Jesus resurrect more people in the Gospels? If you think about it, he resurrects a very small amount of people. In fact, I, I've, I've read the Gospels a few times. Three times in total. Um, there's a widow's son in the city of Nain that he resurrects. He resurrects his um, friend Lazarus in John 11. Uh, and then he resurrects the synagogue ruler's daughter here in Mark, also recorded in Matthew and Luke. Interesting. enough, two of those times, Jesus delays his arrival. With Lazarus, he gets there late, and they blame it on him and say, if you would have gotten here earlier, she'd still be alive. Same here with this story. He gets late to the party, um, and they die. Um, we could even raise the question a little bit higher. Why doesn't Jesus heal more people? He heals a lot of people in the Gospels, much more than, than resurrects. But surely there are a lot more people who, who could have been healed. Um, Surely there are a lot more people who who could have been transformed, paralyzed people who could have walked, deaf people who could have heard, mute people who could have talked. I think this question brings us to the point of the Gospels, to the point of what Jesus is doing, is trying to do, and is continuing to try to do um, today. Jesus does not go around trying to raise as many people as possible from the dead because that wasn't his point. Jesus is not a one-man ambulance. He's not a one-man liberation machine. He's not a one-man medical center. What Jesus is doing throughout the Gospels is he's announcing a work that God is beginning. And he says repeatedly that when he enacts something of the kingdom, when he heals, or when he preaches, or when he brings someone back to life, it's a signpost to the larger work of what God is doing. And when when you have a signpost, you've got to make sure that you follow it to the reality. You've got to make sure that you follow it to what it's actually pointing to. What Jesus is doing when he confronts evil like death or like sickness or like paralysis or like social exclusion with people whose sins have not been forgiven, is he is showing us what his ministry is about. It's bringing life. It's bringing light, joy, peace, and liberation. Jesus is attacking the system behind the evil, not just the symptoms. Does that make sense? Jesus could have spent his whole life attacking the symptoms and trying to heal as many people as possible in whatever sort of earthly time frame he had. (laughs) Instead, Jesus was single-handedly committed to bringing down the entire regime behind what was responsible for evil in his world. It'd be like someone who wants to eradicate homelessness. They could spend their entire life giving money to people who are homeless, helping them find jobs, helping them get back on their feet, things of that nature. After 33, 50, 70 years, they would have affected a lot of people's lives. They would have done a lot of good, but there'd probably still be homelessness on a large scale, on a systematic scale. The the bigger problems that created homelessness would probably still exist and would probably still perpetuate homelessness. Or someone could do, do, do this. They, they could actually go and try to attack the powers that create homelessness. Could go after the systemic injustices that perpetuate the cycle of homelessness. And that perhaps would be more effective. Actions like this are signposts. They're just that. They're signs of the ultimate reality. Jesus here comes in direct counter with death. Not because he's seeking to get rid of every symptom of death that exists, but because one day he himself will meet death and will defeat it permanently for good. When you hear the phrase Talitha Kumai, it should have meaning not only for this little girl, it should also direct you to Jesus' own encounter with death. There are two echoes I think we need to keep in mind when we hear this phrase Talitha Kumai. The first is Jesus' own resurrection. The words used here in 541, Kumai, little girl, I say to you, arise. These are the same exact words used to describe Jesus' resurrection by the early Christians. Um, Jesus, it seems, in this encounter is giving us somewhat of a movie trailer of what's going to ultimately happen to him on what we celebrate on Easter Sunday when we say, He is risen. He is risen. It's interesting to note in the scriptures, this might be conjecture on my part, we we don't get this explicitly, um, we do get to to know though, um, the scriptures never say Jesus raised himself. The language is always passive, the father raises Jesus. Um, So we're not told that Jesus came to the father, or or the father came to Jesus and said something cute to him, right? Like Jesus, rise. Um, But I think there is this sense here again of a a power coming and saying, come back, rise. I'm overturning the sentence of death that's been played on you. What we celebrate on Easter is not a few incidents of death-defying miracles. We celebrate that death itself has been defeated. This, indeed, is the difference between Jesus' resurrection and this little girl's resurrection. Um, we might more properly call what happened to this little girl in the other two accounts that we mentioned in the Gospels, resuscitation. Um, there's a reason there's not a church built for the little girl um, of Jairus's daughter I've never heard the phrase Jairus' daughter is risen and everyone goes she is risen indeed she died again hopefully she had a good life she lived long hopefully she enjoyed the years that she got back um, but she was still inside the system of death when she came back she was resurrected Here's what Christians claim about Jesus, and and you can take it at face value, you can leave it, Um, but all I can do is proclaim it to you. Christians say Jesus has come through the other side of death. He hasn't just experienced it, he's defeated it, which is why we say he's alive right now, unable to be touched by death. And as our champion and our leader, one day he will take us through that exact same journey. Well we will rise again, unable to be touched by death. This is why we say Jesus is immortal. He cannot die again. Um, we, we often don't think of it like this. I wish we would think of it more like this. Um, um, but Jesus, according to Christian belief, is alive right now. Um, as alive as he ever was as a human being. The incarnation, um, the, the Christian word for God becoming a human being, um, theologically, this is not a temporary thing. God doesn't become a human for a few years and then sheds humanity like the snake of a skin as he goes back into heaven. As alive as Jesus was when he was in the Gospels, Christians believe he's still alive today. He's got skin. He's got a heartbeat. He's got hair. The, The whole point of the resurrection is they tried to take him out. And in trying to take him out, he paradoxically took on everything they had to offer, exhausted its power, and began a new creation a world where he would once take his people to live in eternity <laughs> romans 1 says jesus was declared in power to be the son of god according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead later in mark 16 um, the angels are talking to the women looking for jesus they say don't be alarmed you seek jesus of nazareth who was crucified he has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Jesus is alive. This is why church service is not a memorial service. So often I think we mess this up. Jesus is not Martin Luther King Jr. He's not a brave guy who died and inspired us. He's alive. He's moving today. He's doing things today. His mission continues on. The same mission that he started in the Gospels. The kingdom movement's not over, and both he and we still have work to do. When we hear Talitha Kumai, we should hear echoes of Jesus' own resurrection. The second thing, we should hear echoes of our own future resurrection. The scriptures are clear about this, <clears throat> whether we focus on it or not, that one day all believers will hear these same words and will be told to rise will be told to, to resurrect. The words used in Mark five forty one are again the same words used to describe our future resurrection. <coughs> the girl here and Jesus and his resurrection are giving us a coming attraction of what is to come for us. And I, I think, tragically, the church has so missed the mark when it comes to thinking about this. If you've been at FCQ for a while, you know this is, this is my pet issue. If I were to die today, I'd be happy if I went down with people remembering me talking about this, we have reduced the afterlife to the common denominator of heaven, some spiritual existence, instead of the holistic hope found in the scriptures of a full bodily resurrection on a new heaven and on a new earth. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits or prototype or example, coming attraction of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam will die, so also in Christ we shall all be made alive. When you read the book of Revelation, which tells us about the events that will happen when Jesus returns, we're told that everybody, believer or unbeliever, will one day upon Jesus' second coming be resurrected, will come out of the ground, as weird and zombie-like as that sounds, and will all, one by one, stand in front of the risen Christ and be judged what we've done or not done, what we've believed and not believed. This is the future that awaits us. Talitha, kumai, rise up. When we hear those words, we should anticipate the words that we should one day live. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in this. This is not just a matter of weird theology. I don't think it's important to, to get this right just so you can beat other people over the head and say, you believe in heaven? Ha, ha, ha let's talk about the resurrection. Uh, I, I think it actually has a practical, important effect on how we live our lives. If the hope of heaven is, is what we've got going for us as Christians, what that creates, and I, I just don't think you can disprove me on this. We can look around, is it creates the lowest common denominator of Christianity. Um, because everyone is aware that there are good things on this earth. There's a lot, this is a secret, act like you don't agree with me, there's a lot of fun stuff here. Have you ever been on a jet ski? <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is we, I think, rightly go, I don't want to miss out on some of that. And so I'm going to do whatever I need to do, lowest common denominator, to check off with the boxes I need to, to make sure I'll get into heaven, because I, I definitely don't go to hell. And then I'll get as many vacation homes as I can. And I'll, I'll spend as much money on myself as I, as I can justify. And I'll spend as much time on myself as I can. People who believe in the resurrection, though, are able to have a different attitude. They can say, I'm not afraid of death, and I'm not afraid of missing out on anything. Um, I'll spend my life on mission here. And if it sacrifices my life, so be it. If it sacrifices my time, so be it. In fact, I happen to believe I'll have eternity to do all of the fun stuff there is to do on earth. I think it couldn't make a more practical decision in our life. I have a theory. um, True discipleship is not even possible without the hope for the resurrection of the dead. The moment you bring in some disembodied heaven into the the factor for what's going to happen to you after you die, you have cut out the legs from being able to be obedient in this life. Because there will always be the fear that you're going to miss out on something. There will always be the fear that you've got to get everything in that you want to do right now. Christians, if they're anything, they're they're people who are not afraid of death. Further, whatever situation they find themselves in, um, they they realize they're not too far gone. They're not too far into death or despair or addiction or loneliness. Um, They realize that they are always primed and ready to hear Jesus come to them and say, Rise, rise. To come to them and and, and join him in his mission. Talitha kumai. With this phrase, Jesus changes the life of the girl. With this phrase, we're reminded of the reason we celebrate today, that that Christ has met and defeated death. And is alive today. We're reminded of the future that awaits for us. When one day we will rise and enjoy eternity with him. My prayer this morning is that you would have a heart and a mind and a soul that, that is able to hear Christ say to you, rise. We're told in Revelation we get a name by Jesus that only we know and he knows. I wonder if that's what will precede this this verb kumai. If he'll come with the name that, that only he and you are aware of and say that to you and then say rise. It's time to get up. I pray that, that we would be able to personally hear him whisper rise in our hearts and in our minds. I pray that you'd be encouraged by the truth of our future resurrection and the eternal life that's headed our way. For those of us with doubts, myself included, for those of us who struggle with Jesus' timing, look, Jairus had to to, to have been struggling with Jesus' timing here. Why'd you stop and talk to that woman? Lazarus' friends had to have been struggling with that timing. Um, It's hard for me to imagine you being a Christian for a long time without going, why have you not come back yet and changed things? Why is there 2,000 years of war and suffering and struggle and sickness? What's going on? What's the timing here? Um, For those of us who struggle with that, I pray that um, we would be able to learn the hard but well fought lesson that Jesus' timing is always perfect, and that it it always results in more than we could have asked for. Um, You don't have a bigger imagination than Jesus does. And Jesus' imagination results in something better than you could have ever come up with. I pray that you'd find the courage and patience to believe against all odds that Jesus has risen and will rise with you on one day. I pray that Jesus' own historical resurrection would be the bedrock of your faith. There's lots of things that trip us up in this world. There's lots of questions about the Bible and about faith that even I don't have answers for but I've never been able to shake the conviction that Jesus, the human being, is alive. And there's not much I can do about it, whether I like it or not. I might have questions. I might have doubts. But he's alive. And he comes to me and he says, let's go, rise. I pray that that would be your foundation. I pray, finally, that this morning we would hear with hearts open and respond with enthusiasm and joy As we repeat our confession, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray together.